Listener Production. The only secret I can ever impart to anybody about what makes a marriage long-lasting, I think the willingness of the two people to make it work is all that's needed. Because marriages fall apart or relationships fall apart when at least one person stops wanting it to work. And if you want it to work, you will find a way to make it work. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Musician Ben Lee has been entertaining audiences for 30 years and his quirky talent has stood out since he was a teenager. Now, I'm someone who's drawn to eccentric, creative souls as I adore how they're true to themselves. I'm a big fan of Ben's music. His new single, Parents Get High, is out next week from his album, I'm Fun. And I wanted to talk to Ben about his sense of fun and if that's changed now that he's so-called grown-up. Ben Lee! I'm here. Yippee! <laughs> you are here. And you are the ultimate groover. Oh, really? Yes. I like that. Yeah. You are groovy, you are cool, and you've got a new album coming out. And I've always loved your music. And what I love about your music is that it's cheeky, it's exuberant, and it's positive. Yeah, I think that's all true. I guess the essence of what I've always wanted to do creatively and then even not just with my music but in terms of like the way I interact with media and with my audience is a sense of playfulness. And it's been interesting because the world has become more conducive to having, being able to convey subtler tones through like podcasts and social media and stuff whereas before the media was a lot more... um, it was just two-dimensional because it was basically print or you went on Rove or whatever. It's kind of nice to be able to play now because there's so many outlets that you can sort of weave different types of cheekiness, which is the essence of what I want to do. And as you even say the word cheekiness, I have to tell our listeners, you have this lovely kind of cheeky smile on your face. And with your new music too, you talk about it wanting to be fun. Life's got to be fun. Has that changed though for you? as you've gotten older? I think in some ways I've become more resolute in my belief that the creation of genuine fun, and and when I say fun, I don't mean that like forced New Year's Eve thing where like there's all this pressure to have the best night of your life. And I also don't mean something that's sort of self-destructive and debauched to the point of like annihilation of the self, but just like staying connected to that part of you that's a kid. As you get older and you get more aware of the challenges facing the world and our civilization, our planet, you realize that we need human ingenuity and creativity more than ever before. 
So what is the best atmosphere from which to come up with solutions? And so I think contributing a genuine, fun, playful atmosphere is perhaps the best contribution that creative people can do to solving world problems. Because I don't have any of the big solutions, but I do think I can help foster an atmosphere in which other people can hopefully come up with some. I think that's a very important point that you make. I'm a huge believer in fun and connecting with that playful side of ourselves that often we do forget as we grow up. You know, we think we have to be grown up and serious and we lose that sense of when you are a kid chasing joy. Absolutely. And I think it's to the detriment of a lot of big ideas is they they get conveyed with zero sense of play and fun. I think one of the reasons that progressive politics have sort of become like a, a target of like people going, oh, the woke crowd, they're so overly earnest and overly seriousness is that like when you, especially if you are an empathetic person and compassionate and concerned with human suffering, you can lose the sense of communicating your ideas with a sense of play and joy. And I think then you leave space for cheekier, troll-like atmosphere to come from the opponents and to capture a generation of people that don't believe in taking politics so seriously and all that kind of thing. I was really inspired by the 60s activists like um, the Yippies and like people that were... A Yippie? What's a Yippie? Um, the Yippies were like, they were hippies, but they were sort of like activists. They weren't chill. So they did things like establishing free stores, which we have in Australia now with like Oz Harvest. That is a Yippie principle. It's a lot of a sense of like cheeky playfulness and particularly with environmentalism and all that kind of stuff. It's just like really important to engage people's sense of joy because ultimately what kind of world are we creating if we find the solutions but they're not enjoyable to implement? You're so right. So you obviously do it through your music because your music is joyful and playful. How though do you do it in your daily life? You've got two kids, you've got Goldie and your stepdaughter. How do you encourage them to be playful or do you find sometimes they're a little bit more mature than you are? I mean, I think it's to do with the way you look at decision-making. That's what I've always tried to impart as a parent. So, for instance, in 2020, you know, we live in LA and COVID was absolutely rampant and everything in Australia at that point was, you know, in a much better position. And we talked about the idea of coming out and spending a year in Australia in 2021. And there were various tones we could have had that conversation with. And I just said, guys, what we're not going to do is make a fear-based decision right now. Let's make a decision out of what we think is actually going to be nourishing and expansive and enjoyable. And in that way, I think like, I think of it as like the best thing you can do is teach your kids to dance, like with life, you know, because there's no answers that we know of. There's no correct or incorrect way of doing life. And that's, I think, something that I'm noticing as a parent I think the education system has like really failed young people. And I think there's a reason why tertiary education is becoming like more and more redundant in the world. And in Australia, we still have basically an affordable university education system. But in America, where it's not, you rightfully have like a whole generation of kids going like, why am I doing this? Just to set myself up in debt for the rest of my life? Because you're not necessarily being taught a skill set that has to do with problem solving and looking for opportunity. 
you're still being taught a basic type of like, you know, it's old-fashioned, like rote learning. Of course, and it's also trying to fit everyone into a box. Exactly. And as you know, we all learn things differently. We all respond to information in different ways and there are only a certain number of people, number of kids who can sit in a classroom and absorb information in that quite boring way. And, you know, I'm thinking again of you as a parent and I remember I heard you say something about what was tricky for you was realising that your kids are actually different to who you are. I know for me, I used to expect that my kids would think the same way that I did, would have the same sorts of interests and talents. And it's quite revealing when you think, oh no, (laughs) they're actually different, very different. It's so confronting and there's the interests and all of that, but then there's even just in approach and pace and tone and the way they do life that like, I don't know, one of the biggest gifts you can give a kid is letting them embrace their own approach. And that might be trying lots of different things, or it might be being more cautious, but whatever it is, finding what's natural and helping them do that. And I just think like the one thing I've really wanted to impart is the thing that has served me best in life beyond writing songs or music or whatever, any of that has been learning to see opportunity And then being brave enough to pursue it and understanding that, you know, the doors of opportunity open briefly. And if you don't step through them in those moments, they may not be open tomorrow. And that's just the reality of the way nature seems to work. And it's the way that seduction works. It's everything. It's like if you wait to ask someone out that you have a crush on, someone else might ask about it. Next thing they're going to be married to someone else and you've, you missed <laughs> you the boat. missed it. Like I had an interesting moment with my daughter where she made these like brooches or like hair clips or something and she was walking around our neighbourhood selling them to all our neighbours and it was really cute. At the end of the day, I sat down she was like, I'm going to make more. And I said, which ones are you going to make more of? She's like, I'm going to make more of all of them. I was like, but gods, look, there's only one of them that are selling. The other one, people are buying this one. I forget what it was. It was like a type of hair clip, not a bracelet. I was like, I think hair clips are the way to go. <laughs> yeah. And that type of thing, it's like that's not something that you are going to learn in school. That's street smarts. Like that's basically going like, yes, it's not about pandering, but understanding that if you want to be a valuable member of a community or of the world, learning to honestly appraise what your gifts are and what is needed within your community is the way you're going to become embedded within it. Let's talk about then embracing those opportunities, seeing them, identifying them. For you, they came along when you were very young. What were you, 13 or 14? I mean, your music was coming to the fore and then you were part of a band and then the Beastie Boys embraced you. How does a teenage boy grab that opportunity? Um, With desperate vigour. So (laughs) did you or were you frightened? Um, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I I don't think, without being trite, like there's a reason that people say that feel the fear and do it anyway, that fear is natural. I mean, to some degree, we are still like a cave-dwelling species that anything that puts us out of our comfort zone is a threat. And there's a degree to which it isn't safe. That's just the reality. Like life isn't a safe container and there are new experiences that are going to be scary. 
But that's where our minds are quite brilliant and we are able to calm ourselves down and assess how much of that is the primitive fear of things changing and the unknown and how much of it is genuine, am I unsafe? So you're explaining that to me in a very sensible, mature way. But as a teenage boy, did you see it like that or how did you see it? I can say it now articulating it, but I would have articulated it then by, am I scared? Who cares? That's the reality that, like, I knew enough to knew that it wasn't going to stop me. And then it's been, you know, life has been a series of those things. Like every time I go into a collaboration or every time I go into a new medium or try something, there is a deep sense of the possibility of my own humiliation and failure. And I don't, I don't think people that aren't in the public eye or in, you know, entertainment or whatever understand the degree of risk with every decision you make, particularly when you have a long career and people start perceiving you as like, oh, they'll be right. We are improvising this entire thing and it involves constant decision-making for which there are no guarantees. And having a bit of fear under your belt and a fire under you is like, it's not a bad thing, you know, because the stakes are high and particularly as you have a family and you're trying to balance like having a family and wanting to provide for them and all of that, if you then allow yourself to become like a dead professional, you're not serving anybody because ultimately it's not going to work for you sort of spiritually, right? You're going to like, you may as well have just gone conservative and taken an office job anyway. You know what <laughs> I mean? Not, it's of like, course it's not going to f- feed your soul. And, and it's your probably not going to work as no. a result. So you're constantly kind of just in the reality of like a tightrope walk. And the one thing that I've come to trust is the thing that excites me is the next right thing. And what is that now? Well, at the moment, you know, me and my wife, Ione, we've just started a podcast called Weirder Together, and that's been really great. Salvador Dolly threw a great party. We all drank Bacardi. It got kind of gnarly. We're light as a feather. We're tougher than leather. Together we're weird. We're weirder together. I had a fun listening to the episodes, and one particular part that your wife was talking about, and I'd love to talk with you more about it, is when you guys got married, you got married in India and she basically says she married someone who had a problem. Yeah, yeah. So, well, don't we all? <laughs> of course. We all have problems and that's what makes us interesting. I mean, yeah. I've got a heap of problems and I love that because it makes me who I am. But when she was talking about the problem that you had, yeah. that was with cults, wasn't it? This search for, for meaning. Yeah, I would basically phrase it as an inappropriate allocation of my personal energy, right? Because at the end of the day, I am sort of an obsessive person who works incredibly hard at whatever I'm doing. And there have been times in my life where I've put that in places that are not as appropriate as into my creativity. So it's funny because when I'm obsessive about my creativity, it creates a very harmonious home. Like it, it, it's right. You know what I mean? Like when I put it into these sort of existential searches and different occult practices and all that, it was like disharmonious 
within our home, you know. And why did you do that? Was it because you felt creatively you couldn't find what you wanted to be doing so you were searching somewhere else? I think in some ways what's simplest in life is hardest to accept. And when I was 14, basically the sort of elders of my lineage, which is like alternative cultural thinkers, scooped me up and were like, you're one of us, get to work. And that is very young for that to happen. And when you say, though, yeah. elders, do you mean music mentors? Yeah, So yeah. the Beastie Boys. Yeah, and- these are people who were cultural curators who they pointed at things and said, that's interesting, what's happening over there, and the world would turn its head and pay attention to it. And I think that happening to me, like them pointing at me and kickstarting a career, the simplicity of that was hard for me to accept. And I think I continued to look for community and fraternity and these types of things. Belonging. Belonging when it had already happened. Like my community is the freaky thinkers and creators within show business, you know, with the ones that have a good heart, the ones that are expansive and playful and want to make stuff to see what's going to happen. You know, not the people that are like just chasing a buck or the people, you know, it's like. Well, the dreamers. Yeah, there's a certain type and it's not always within genres that are the same. You know, like I've just done this video for Parents Get High for the new single. On TikTok, the, you with a pink cowboy hat and in the news. I know, that was born for this bullshit, yeah. So the new <laughs> one, Parents Get High, is like um, all these amazing cameos by, like, my people, whether it's like Thelma Plum or Adam Green or, you know, Lauren Lapkus and Abby Chatfield and Paul Shear and Megan Washington, Emily Wurramura, like people who I feel like creative affinity with. And I guess it, it took me some time to realise that Both my community was in show business, but not everybody. Do you know what I mean? Because there are people that have different value systems than I do. The silly way I say it is if I email someone about collaborating on something and they say, let me loop you in with my manager or agent, they're not one of mine. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's a time for that. If we're going to have contracts or something, you can loop in your agent. But when it comes to the creative spark, people directly connecting and going, you want to play? The people that say yes to that, they're my kind of people, you know? And um, it's that type of um, creating a tribe, creating a family that I've learned over 30 years in the industry and realizing that being selective about who you trust and who you play with and who you let in in that way You can have a very open heart, but you can also say, hey, the level of freedom I want to play at, um, you got to show up ready to be loose, ready to have a sense of humour about yourself. You know what I mean? That is essential. I think you have to be able to laugh at yourself and not take yourself 
too seriously, really. Exactly. Because there's enough serious stuff that's going on in the world. Exactly. Would I be correct in saying because you're able to embrace more of that and to think, well, my tribe's here, I don't need to be searching elsewhere, I don't need to be listening for other gurus or people to give me the answers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I also, um, in some ways, I think I was one of the sort of pure intentioned people that I'm like a or sort of a perfect person to take advantage of because I'm idealistic, right? Like, because I believe there is goodness and there is a right way forward just personally, you know? So in that way, that makes you, if you're cynical, so someone tells you, hey, this is a good way forward, you go, no, it's not. Fuck off, right? Because you're cynical, right? <laughs> yeah. Whereas because I believe there are good choices you can make, I am then found myself susceptible to people's sales pitches before I realized that I'm the best judge. You know what I mean? That's good. You do that. Go down the path you want to go do down. You do you? Yeah. But do you know who gave me an amazing lesson about that? Was Baz Luhrmann. When I was about 19, I was having lunch with him and he was telling me a story of at that time these Danish directors um, had started this thing called Dogma and it was Lars von Trier and Thomas Vinterberg and you know and they had this whole style of cinema that was very no frills like no arbitrary sound and lights and action it was all about like boiling cinema down to its essence and Baz was saying he'd been having dinner with Lars von Trier and Lars said to him Baz I challenge you to make a Dogma film and Baz turned and go Lars, I've got my own dogma. <laughs> and I thought that was the best story. Yes. But he was also, look, he was probably my age now when he said that. And it does take a certain type of confidence that you have to like, you kind of got to get there often. I mean, there are some unique people like Jimi Hendrix or whatever who like had it from their early 20s. But for most of us, it's a journey where you can kind of look at others and go, I've got my own dogma, thanks. And to have that confidence and that sense of self to say, I'm enough. Yeah, not just from a place of, like, arrogance or rebelliousness or something, like where you go, oh, I'm not going to listen to anybody. That's just like being a teenager. But being an adult and going, that's actually really cool and it's not for me, that requires maturity. And let's talk a little bit more about that and especially in terms of partnerships. You've been married now for 13 years. Tell me, how did you meet your wife? I met Ioni, so when I was 18 and I just finished my HSC, went to LA to make my second solo album, Something to Remember Me By. As you do. Yeah, yeah. So I already, my career was going already, you know. So, So I went over there and then what struck me, was something I wasn't familiar with at all in American culture was like everyone lives away from their families. There's a lot of travelling at Christmas. So literally everyone I knew left town in LA except one person, this guy Ian Rogers, who was um, a friend of mine who was the Beastie Boys web guy at that time. And so I called him. I was like, dude, you're the only person I know in town. Like the people I was staying with were gone all I was doing was just like ordering Domino's pizza and watching Donahue. I had no <laughs> plans, you know. And so Ian was like, oh, come, my girlfriend's best friend is having a little party. And why don't you come for Christmas? I was like, great. So I went on Christmas Eve and it was um, Ioni's house. You know, I was 18 and they were 26-year-old women, which like, I mean, 
mind-blowing, you know, for an 18-year-old Aussie boy to be around like 26-year-old women in the Hollywood Hills. It was just awesome. And, and then, she's sort of from rock star royalty in a sense. Her dad is Donovan, the folk singer. She didn't grow up with him. She didn't meet him till she was 16, but very much like she grew up in Hollywood. Like her best friend is Karis Jagger, who is Mick's oldest kid. Another daughter is Amy Fleetwood, who is Mick Fleetwood's daughter. So they, that world was very much a world she's used to, which, you know, in Australia, like it's now, I guess, if you're like Barnsley, one of Barnsley's kids, it's like <laughs> it's now more like a known thing. Like, but the, there it's more like the generations continue to play out. Um, so, yeah, I met all of them and her family and we all took magic mushrooms on um, Christmas Day. And I just sort of, I did have this feeling of like, whatever this is, this is how I want to live. <laughs> did you kind of pinch yourself and think, how is this? 18-year-old Bondi boy ended up here. The thing about LA that's so amazing is like, and the reason people hate it is because it's a secret. It's a city full of secrets. Like if you show up as a tourist in LA, you don't know where to go. You don't know. All you can do is like go to Hollywood Boulevard or go to Venice Beach. You don't know what is happening because everything's happening in people's houses. You have to be invited into worlds to see them. Otherwise you remain an outsider. To it. So it was like this entry into a world that was like kind of bohemian, but fun and loving and sexy and just sort of like, it was just very different from my, you know, middle-class Jewish upbringing. But we didn't get together till 10 years after that. You know, we knew each other. We, we stayed friends, but lightly, you know, we were lightly friends, but it is amazing. And that house is the house I live in now that we live in together. No way! Yeah. So when I... Isn't um, that beautiful, that full circle? It's crazy. So when uh, we got together, it was like, oh, I'll sell my place, you sell your place, we'll start fresh. And then we were like looking around, just going like, how much like macho pride do I need to like on principle sell a house that like, this is like the dream. In Laurel Canyon, it's like a beautiful creative house that's like been a container for so many experiences. And it's been more for us just continuing that and... So we always have like jam sessions and parties and people over and if people are heartbroken, they come and stay. And it's like, those houses are rare, you know, they're like sort of these magic sanctuaries. And being married for 13 years, has your relationship got better? Or oh, yeah. in what way? I mean, in some ways, you know, I don't know, like when you're in a long relationship, you kind of can't even believe that it was the same people that started the relationship and it sort of wasn't. Like you're looking at each other, seeing potential, <laughs> I think, and though you might convince yourself that, yes, you're in love with the perfect person, you're not. <laughs> like, I mean, there's a long way to go. The journey is a long journey of maturing and becoming fully just like realised within the world. And I don't mean to make it sound so esoteric, but just being an effective human being the kind of person that has integrity, says what they're going to do and does it, is accountable when they make mistakes. Like that is like, that's a real journey, you know? It is. And it, it takes work, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think the number one thing it takes and literally the only, the only secret I can ever impart to anybody about what makes a marriage long-lasting, and not that ours is like, there's way longer marriages, but we're, you know, coming up to 15 years. That's pretty good innings in Hollywood. Um, you know, and we like each other still. But uh, 
I think the willingness of the two people to make it work is all that's needed. Because marriages fall apart or relationships fall apart when at least one person stops wanting it to work. And if you want it to work, you will find a way to make it work. So everything we've been through, we always wanted to make it work. And we've hit bumpy points and you hit challenges, some you could foresee, some you can't. But we wanted to make it work. And so we did. And, you know, I've had a friend say to me once, the trick to staying married is not getting divorced. And it's kind of true. It's like at the end of the day, it's like you keep it going if you want to keep it going and you will. But And that is really a beautiful thing. And the point you make too about both people have to be invested. If, if someone starts to check out, that's... If one person checks out, it's over. Sometimes someone checks out temporarily and goes through a crisis and realises, you know, and people even have affairs and there's all kinds of things that marriages actually can recover from. But still... The point of healing only starts when both people are willing to really be there again. Talking to you, I don't think you're square at all, but your wife described you as square. Yeah, but she apologised after we stopped rolling. (laughs) Oh, did she? Look, it's a little bit like, you know how in marriages there's like the roles you play, like the characters you play? Like I'm the person who's going to book the flights. Seriously? So you're the the organiser? I'm the person who looks at the Apple iCal and actually knows what's going to happen that day. <laughs> like, Ione is, like, much more macro and she's much more, like, where Ione's strengths in our marriage are is she'll say, I think we need to check in with Kate. She seems stressed about something. Um, there's something a bit off with this. Can we talk about it? Like, her perceptiveness to just the larger way the family is moving and the way we're moving is is unparalleled in our house. Like it's very sensitive and very accurate. So in that way, I think she perceives me as, you know, more square or whatever. But it's also, I think, where we come from that for me, I was brought up in sort of a more conservative environment. So for me, things that are out there hold more tantalizing appeal. Whereas for her, she comes from sort of Hollywood hippie chaos. Like her biggest sexual fantasy would be to open um, her linen cupboards and has ever everything perfectly folded and organized in pillowcases and you know like like that to her would be the biggest turn on. I should do that for so her. Like you do one that. Year. I hope you do. I that. should. I should. I should. That should be a surprise where she just comes in. There's like all new linens for her birthday. Um, so things like that. It's really about the fetishization of the other. Like whatever it is that you didn't grow up with is like hot to you, you know? It's so true. Now, Ben, I could talk to you for weeks. You're an oracle. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you are. But finally, you've got this amazing album that's coming out. What do you want to do next? Do you ever think something apart from music or is it always are you going to be making records when you're 18? Well, I genuinely always said, Like I would look at like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and now like Bonnie Raitt and um, Tom Waits and I would look at artists that have these like dynamic creative careers in their 70s and say, I want that. So I hope my goal has always been to do my best work in my 70s, that it's a story that keeps getting better. But I think what I'm realising, there's the collaborating with Ione in, in different ways is and what Weirder Together is 
it's interesting because um, even just the name Weirder Together, it's a night we had that was like a variety show that we did at Giant Dwarf in Sydney and at Largo in LA. And it, it, it embodies both having an offbeat sensibility but also community. And I think that can make all sorts of things happen. And I prefer not to put um, a limit on that, like what types of projects we can tackle together. But I do think that um, as I get older, my curation talents are something I want to invest more energy into. And that can be anything from producing a record and picking the people to play on it to helping people launch their podcast to developing some film and TV stuff to throwing great parties. Whatever it is, it's all about the same thing. It's all about creating a space, setting an atmosphere and deciding what and who is going to be in that space. And I think that to me is like the broad stroke essence of where I want to be creatively moving in this next chapter. I want to come to one of your parties. Right on, man. I think we're in one right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. How amazing would it be to go to one of Ben's parties, to sit around and jam or even pretend to jam? I mean, I'd love to. I could maybe do air guitar. That's what I could do. Something else that I'm really looking forward to doing is bopping away in the audience at one of his concerts because he is going to be touring around the country and we've put a link to his tour dates in our show notes. So head there if you want to head to one of his concerts. Now, for more big conversations like this, search the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. And while you're there, please push the follow button. Make me a favourite so you'll never, ever miss an episode. And if you like today's chat, why not check out my chat with Keith Urban? You know, golly gee, the amount of times I'm making things so hard for myself. I'm like, what am I doing this? I should be like supporting myself here. Like I should be the first person to believe in what I'm doing. Or have a listen to Osher Ginsberg. I just woke up and went, that's it. I'm I'm done. I can't I can't ever do that again. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer Nick McClure. Audio producer, Nikki Sitch. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.